Our scripture text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verses 6 to 13. Just a reminder of where we are. We are studying this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica this fall, and uh, we're finishing up the first part of the, of the letter. There's five chapters in total. We're finishing up the first part through the first three chapters, and it's been a very personal uh, letter so far. Paul is writing to the Christians in this Greek city. Uh, Paul had been there. That's how the church got started, but he's not there now. He's in another Greek city. He's in the city of of Corinth, but he's still, he's still thinking about the church in Thessalonica, and so he sends Timothy, one of his companions, he sends him to go and visit the Thessalonians and bring back a report of, uh, of how the church is doing. And so now Timothy is back uh, with Paul in Corinth, and Paul shares a bit about his reaction to the report that Timothy brought back with him. So let's read this. I'm going to invite you to stand as I do, and when I make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord, I'd invite you to respond by saying, Thanks be to God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting at verse 6 and reading through verse 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your fa- see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. John Harper was a, uh, a Scottish Baptist pastor. Thought all the Scots were Presbyterians, didn't you? He was a Scottish Baptist pastor who died in 1912. And, uh, and, and everyone who knew him said that he was a man who was just absolutely consumed in his love for and his concern for uh, the people around him to know Jesus and to know him better. His brother, George, wrote about uh, John Harper. He said, my beloved brother was a man mighty in prayer. So earnest was he in his pleadings with God for a perishing world. Another Christian leader who knew him uh, once wrote, I can say that no pastor nor teacher nor evangelist ever moved my inner being more than the pleading and the preaching of John Harper. Now what we just read, we see the Apostle Paul consumed with love for the Thessalonians. A love that is like what was just described of John Harper. But let's step back and ask ourselves, as we look at how Paul is interacting with the Thessalonians here, let's step back and ask ourselves, how do you show love to someone? How do you do that, right? How would you, how would they know, right? What would your behavior be towards someone if you truly really cared for them and I want to think about it specifically from a Christian point of view which falls right in line with the theme of this whole first part of the letter because that's what Paul has been doing he has been giving us a primer in a certain sense on what the church is and what a Christian is and how we're to behave towards one another and how they interact with leaders and how leaders ought to take care of those who are under their their care and that's what Paul's been doing for these first three chapters and now here these are the things 
that ought to be present in Christian love for others. Now, forgive me if there is a little bit of overlap between what we're going to talk about this week and what we talked about last week, and that's because there is a very, I warned you about this last week, a very clear connection between the first part of chapter 3 and the end of chapter 3. It's the same themes that Paul is overlapping on. So if there's any repetition, it's as much Paul as it is me. But here, what I want us to look at are three things that are present in Christian love for others. Three things that are of primary concern to the Christian if they're truly loving someone else. And there is a concern, number one, for the other person's spiritual condition. That's number one. Number two, there is a desire to be present with them. To have real relationship with someone that you love and care for. And third, there is prayer for the other person's love of others and the other person's growth in holiness. All right, so three things characterize Christian love for others. Concern, presence, and prayer. First, I want to talk about concern. Now, we saw this last week. I don't want to belabor the point, but Paul obviously has a deep concern for the Thessalonians. Right, he, had left, he had left Thessalonica in a hurry, left him a little bit uneasy because he was gone. It wasn't his fault that he had, had to leave, but he did not leave the Thessalonians well. Right? It wasn't his fault. He was basically, he was basically chased out of town, right? the, the, the torches and pitchforks. They were chasing him out of town. But things weren't finished, at least as well as he would have liked them to be. He hadn't wrapped up all the loose ends like he would have wanted. And he, he would have spent more time, had he been there, he would have spent more time teaching them. He would have spent more time helping them organize the, organize the church, put some structure around the church that he was, he was planting. He would have spent more time mentoring them about how to handle certain situations maybe. Maybe spent more time answering some of their deep theological questions that they would have had. It does seem that Paul um, thinks that there are at least some things that are lacking in their faith. Maybe that's what he says in verse 10. Maybe something that's incomplete, a task undone, something that he wished he had finished or been able to do more of before he left. But he couldn't do it. One way or the other, he couldn't do it. So he had this nagging, ongoing concern for the people in Thessalonica because he had left them so quickly. And we looked last week, verses 1 to 5, um, but he got to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. And he had to know how they were doing. So he sent Timothy to check on them. Now, when we get to the point in verses 6 to 10, Paul is really excited now about the news that Timothy brought back, right? We looked last week about how concerned he was. He sent Timothy. But now we hear a little bit of the news that Timothy brings back because the Thessalonians, they're, they're doing pretty well, right? But, but, but you have to, what, does that, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to be doing pretty well? Have you ever paid attention to conversations that you might have with someone else when they ask you how someone you know is, is doing, Right? It usually comes out of genuine concern for that person. But for example, someone might come up to you and say, hey, hey, how's your son doing? And how's your mom doing? Right? And, the, and the question is absolutely genuine. Right? I'm a, let's assume that. Right? It's, it's, a very, it's not just insincere conversation filler. Right? It's a sincere question. But even so, in most casual conversations that we have with people, particularly when you don't have a whole lot of time, the cultural response, even to a sincere question like that, how's your son doing? How's your mom doing? Right? The cultural response is usually at the superficial kind of level. Right? The most likely answer that you get to a question like that is, oh, thanks for asking. He's doing well. Right? That's how you would say it. Right? And, and, and even if it's true at a practical level, what you kind of mean when you're answering that question probably is something like, you know, his health is good. Right? He's got a job. He's working now. Provides for him. Stuff like that. Right? doing well. But Paul is concerned, you have to see, at a much deeper level. When he sent Timothy, and Timothy comes back, and says, how are the Thessalonians doing? Right? He wasn't just looking for a superficial answer. He was deeply concerned for their spiritual condition. 
And that's why the report that he hears about verse, uh, verse 6, about their faith and love, why it is so incredibly encouraging to him. That's why he's so excited. Because Timothy has, been, has reported that they're doing well by that measure. Right? By, by a spiritual measure. You can, you can see some of the concern and the relief in verse 7. He says, for now we live. Right? It almost implies a contrast. Right? Like, like he was saying, we were worried to death. Right? You hear people say that, right? Right? The mother, even to like, you know, the mother even to like their adult son. I was worried to death about you. Right? It's a, it's a com- and that's what he's saying. But now we live. It's a relief. Right? We were worried to death, but now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. And of course, standing fast in the Lord, right? That's the definition of, of life, eternal security, eternal life. And Paul is just super excited that they aren't wavering from their commitment to Jesus, right? They are standing in the Lord. And Paul, look, Paul has plenty of reasons to be distracted. He references some of them in verse 7, right? All of our distress, all of our affliction. But that's not his biggest concern. All the things that are happening to him, all the, the afflictions that he's experiencing, that's not his biggest concern. He could have, he could have rightly kind of said, look, I, I mean, I care about the Thessalonians and all, but man, you should see my list. You should see the things that I got to deal with. No, his biggest concern, it seems, is the spiritual condition of the Thessalonians. Their relationship with Jesus is his biggest concern. And for the Christian, that really ought to be our biggest concern as well for anyone that we love. Right? What does this mean for you if you're, if you're a Christian? Well, it means that you should care deeply about the well-being of people at all levels, right? Their physical health, sure, their education, right? Their financial status, sure. You should care about those things. All those things are very important. We should care about others that we love in each of those areas. But we should be most concerned about their relationship with Jesus, right? Because that's what brings true life, eternal life. And that means that the most important thing, parents, is not that your children excel at sports, get good grades, or get a good job. Not the most important thing. It's that they know and love Jesus. Right? The most important thing, children, is not that your parents give you a lot of things, take you on fancy vacations, or die with lots of money to leave you. The most important thing is that they know and love Jesus. The mo- your most important concern for your neighbor is not that they trim their hedges, keep their music down, and let you borrow their snowblower. It's that they know and love Jesus. Everyone that you interact with has an eternal soul that is destined to be in the eternal presence of a loving God or not. And it is determined by whether, verse 8, they stand fast in the Lord, whether or not they know and love Jesus. Remember the passion of John Harper. His friend once said of him, how often I heard him say when lying on his face before God, covered with perspiration, Oh God, give me souls or I die. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian maybe, right? does that sound weird to you maybe? Creepy almost? They're after me. Look, what you need to understand is why your Christian friends would be so concerned about this. Right? And I'm not excusing Christians who act like jerks and act all high and mighty and superior to people who don't follow Jesus. Right? There's no excuse for that. That's not what I'm talking about. But if your Christian friend, lovingly and honestly, is really concerned about you, then they're going to want you to know and love Jesus. I don't know if you remember, I, I've, I quoted him before years ago, but that quote from Penn Jillette, you know, the famous uh, illusionist duo, Penn and, and Teller. All right, he was one half of that famous duo. He was an atheist, at least when he said this, but he said, look, he said, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, 
and you believe that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them about that because, you know, it would be socially awkward. He says, if you actually believe this, he says, I've got a question. And here's the question he asks. He says, how much do you have to hate someone not to proselytize to them? Right? In other words, this is what he says. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe eternal life is possible and not tell them about that? I, I asked you to think about how someone shows love for someone who they care about, right? Penn Jillette is telling you how you show hatred towards someone that you care, that you, <laughs> that you think you say you care. This is how you say hatred, he says. What's he saying? He said, this is coming from an atheist. He's saying, if you don't believe God, believe in God, don't believe in Jesus, right? right? Then you might think that Christians are wrong to believe in Jesus. You might think that Christians are weird to believe in Jesus, but don't ever think, if they really believe in Jesus, that they're unloving if they are genuinely and, and, and earnestly concerned with whether or not you know Jesus. Because it, 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 it may seem to some, and they can take it, at, look, you might think I'm weird. Right? You, 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 might, you might think I'm wrong. But if I really believe what I believe, then I, then, then I am not unloving. Right? That's point number one. If you really love someone, you show your concern for their spiritual condition. Now, how else do you show it? You show it with your presence. And again, this, this idea isn't new. Paul's been talking about this already. We've talked about this already over the last couple of weeks. Remember a few weeks ago, chapter 2. Right? He wrote in verse 17 that they, that they, he and his companions, desired to see the Thessalonians face-to-face. -face. I want to see them face-to-face. -face. He didn't want to just hear a report about the Thessalonians. He wanted to see them. He wanted to, to hang out with them. And it goes both ways, obviously, because Paul is very excited. Right? It says in verse 6 that we read, very excited that the Thessalonians, they want to see him too. Right? That's how love works, right? They want to see each other. You want to be in each other's presence. They were prevented from doing that, but it didn't stop their desire. And then Paul comes back, verse 10, right? it says that he's praying earnestly day and night that we might see you face to face. And then in verse 11, when he's actually telling them the prayer that he's praying, he says that the first thing he's praying, that, praying to God is, is that, that God would direct his way back to them. Right? It's the first thing he's praying, that God would lead me back to you. Now, why is this desire, even if it can't always be realized, right? Why is this desire to be face-to-face -face in the presence of people you love? Why is it important if you love them? Well, you may remember, we did this great big giant international experiment a couple of years ago on this subject, right? It was called COVID. And for the moment, I'm not even interested in debating about the severity of this particular virus, about the effectiveness of masking or lockdowns or vaccines or the necessity of remote working or remote work or learning or any of that kind of stuff. I have opinions, you have opinions, but that's not the point. Right, the point, the lesson that we should have learned from this international experiment is that face-to-face -face is better. Right? Even, if it's, even if for a time, right, whether in the case of Paul, pitchforks and, and, uh, you know, and torches, preventing, even if for a time you're prevented from doing that, face-to-face -face is better. Right? I was at a, um, a meeting this past week for a board I'm on, and we survived during COVID. Right? We met via Zoom, like lots of boards and organizations did. We survived. We checked the boxes for fiduciary responsibility. Done. Reviewed the financial statements. Done. Appointed the auditor for next year. Done. We did all that stuff. We accomplished the, the business. But face-to-face -face is better. It's not just more fun, right? I mean, it, it, you can't effectively long-term guide the course of, uh, of an organization unless you have relationships face-to-face -face with the people that you're doing it with. Same thing is true in the church. Right? We still record every week. It's being recorded right now. Our, our service, we put it online. Right? Why? Because there's people who, uh, who, ha who haven't visited us yet and they want to check us out first on, online. That's sort of become the, 
the, the standard. That's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's very few people. In fact, I would wager anymore, anyone who visits, maybe it's you visiting now, right? right? There are very few people, almost no one who visits who hasn't watched this online first. That's fine. It's an appropriate use of technology. There's people who are, who are physically unable to be here. They're either away, they're out of town, they're, they're sick, right? We think it's important for us to put a video online, right? But it's not as good, right? Why? Because, be, because that's how God made us. He made us to be with other people because physical presence communicates something to one another. And one of the things that it communicates is I am willing to take time that I will spend coming to be in your presence. I am willing to take some of that time and willing to give it to you because I love you that much. That's what it says. I, I remember when I was in college and my grandfather died, my father's father. And I remember how impressed I was by all the old co-workers and friends of my father who came to the funeral. Right? They didn't have to come. There was no expectation for them to be there, right? But they came, spending vastly, vastly more time driving to get there than the very brief interaction and very small little short conversation that they had with my dad that night, right? Now, there are tons of fairly obvious applications of this principle to the Christian life, desiring to spend time with someone you you say you love. Let me just throw out a few, right? A few obvious applications, right? First, spend time with God, right? Real time. Look, I know I, I can be a hypocrite in this area too. I understand. I, but, but if you say that you love God and you don't spend time reading what he has to say to you, don't spend time talking to him in prayer earnestly night and day, like Paul says, right? Then you may, you may love him, but you're not acting like it. All right, second, spend time with others. Fairly obvious application from what is, is going on here, right? Somewhat ironic to be citing social media probably here in the middle of this point, but recognize, um, but, but, but I need you to see this. There was a, a great post on one of the satire sites a couple of weeks ago. It had a picture of a man outside playing with his son and the caption said, oh no, man playing baseball with his son has no idea what terrible thing happened in the world this afternoon. Right, now look, I, what that's saying, right? And why that's kind of, you know, satirical is, look, be an informed citizen, it's important to know what's happening in the world, right? But it is no great horror to miss one afternoon's news event if you spent that afternoon playing catch with your son. Last application, right? We could go on and on, but last one, right? And this is why you're here, right? I, I could roll out the reasons for watching, uh, for, for, for watching a better sermon online. I could point you to better sermons to watch. If, that was, if, that was a, if it was just about sitting in your living room in your pajamas, right? right? I, could, I could find you better sermons to watch, right? But that's not the reason why you're here, right? Th think about Paul. Thessalonica would not have been a safe place for Paul. Remember, they ran him out of town, torches and pitchforks, but he didn't care. He wanted to go back, right? Well, at, at least at the moment, consider, and remember, there are no, there, are, there is no mob, at least at the moment, surrounding Calvary with pitchforks and, and torches, right? So take advantage of that, <laughs> you, can drive up the, you can drive up the driveway. There's no blockade. There was a blockade for Paul. They wouldn't let him back into town. He couldn't get there. Take advantage of that. Take advantage of, of the opportunity you have and, and, and come on in. And remember that while I would benefit that there is, I would argue that there is a benefit to each of you for being here, right? That even if you think you don't get anything out of it, your presence is a great encouragement to someone else. Right? Someone who might have been tempted this past week in whatever they might have been going through that they were all alone in that. And your presence, even if you don't get a chance to speak with them, 
your presence communicates to them this morning that they're not alone. All right, that's my point number two. All right, remember our question, how does a Christian show love for someone else that they say they love? Point number one, concern, be concerned about their spiritual condition. Point number two, presence, a desire to be face-to-face and in the presence of other people. Now point number three, prayer. Paul is praying for the Thessalonians. And you see here that Paul does two things. First, he tells the Thessalonians that he's praying for them, verse 10. And second, he tells the Thessalonians what he's praying for them. That's verses 11 to 13. Now, let's take that, just that mere fact that he tells them that he's praying and then he tells them what he's praying. Let's take that as a contribution to the suggestion box for how to, how to encourage someone, right? Practical pro tip on prayer from the Apostle Paul, right? When you pray for someone and you think about it, let them know, right? Try, shoot them a text, right? Tell them the next time you see them face to face, right? Not to get credit, not to make yourself sound all super spiritual, not any of that. Just tell them that you're praying for them and don't tell them just what you're, that you're praying for them. Tell them what you're praying, right? It's like this. Hey, I just wanted to let you know that I was praying for you this morning specifically that God would help you be a good dad this week, right? Huge encouragement. Now, it's not only hugely encouraging, but it does a good job of holding you accountable, right? Because it's not enough to, then to just generically say like, I'm praying for you you got to think through like, okay, what specifically am I praying for you, right? And when you tell them, it holds you accountable as well. That's pro tip from the Apostle Paul. He tells them not just that he's praying for them, he tells them what he's praying for them, right? And Paul lays it out. What's he praying that God would do for these people that he loves? Well, there's three main things, right? We already talked about enough. Verse 11, he's asking that God would make face-to-face meeting possible. But second, verse 12, he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all he's asking god that that, he's asking god that their love would increase and abound that they would have so much love that it would just overflow to others that's how i'm praying for you i'm praying that your love for each other and for others would would that it would just it would increase and abound a love for one another and for all in other words love for other christians in the church right as well as those who aren't Christians, outside the church, and for all. Now, we do have a great responsibility, I think, to those inside the church. That only makes sense, right? The Christian community is, is, is family, but that doesn't relieve us from the responsibility to those outside the, the church as well. Remember John Harper and his passion to see the love of God understood more deeply, not just by other people in his family, but by those outside his family. Because remember, Jesus promised, right? There are sheep that I have that are not of this fold. And so he is praying that they would have a love that would increase and abound, right, for one another and for all. And G.K. Beale, a theologian commentator, says that loving other Christians, if that's, it, when you're loving other Christians, he says you're actually, you actually are loving other people as you love other Christians. He says, think about it like this. He says, loving other Christians is both a school where we can learn how to love, right? In other words, we practice it with each other, right? It's a school. Learn how to love each other. And two, he says, it's an example of what love looks like when other people on the outside are looking in. In fact, this is how Jesus set up loving one another. You remember his command that he gave to his disciples in John chapter 13. This was the, um, the night that he was uh, going to be arrested. He was ultimately going to be killed. And he's giving final instructions to his disciples in John 13. And he says, John 13, 34, right? You may have heard this before. A new commandment I give to you. What is it? New commandment. What? 
that you love one another. It's not really new, right? <laughs> this, this has been, you know, love your neighbor, right? This is, this is, this is an old commandment, but he, but, he, but he phrases it in a new way. He puts it in front of them. He says, this is now the task that I give to you. A new commandment I give to you, right? That you love one another, right? Okay, so the, to those on the inside, right? One another, right? But he continues, he goes on, he says, by this, in other words, by how you love one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, there's a connection between the way that we love each other inside the church and the way that we love all people, even those outside the church. Because what Jesus is doing is effectively giving permission to the outside world to judge whether we're really Christians by the way in which we love one another. Right? So loving one another in that sense becomes an act of evangelism. It becomes an act of testimony to the truth of what we profess to believe. In other words, people are watching how Christians treat other Christians and Jesus is actually inviting them to do it. So that's verse, that's verse 11 in 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul's praying that their love would increase and abound. Now last thing he says he's praying is that verse 13 God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God, God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In other words, not only does he pray that they would grow in love, verse 12, but that, verse 13, they would also grow in holiness, love and holiness. Now, quick definition of holiness here. Right? Kids, what does it mean to be holy? Holy. That's a word we use all the time. We sang it, holy, holy, holy. We sang it lots of times, right? But what does it mean to be holy? Being more and more holy, this is what it means. It means learning more and more about what God is like and what, you, what it means to live more and more like him. Right? What it, mean, it, it, it means, being holy and being more and more holy is learning progressively more and more about what God is like and what it means to follow and live like he wants you to live. And now sometimes that hard, that's hard, I get it. But in the end, living with more and more holiness is actually what's going to make you feel the best, right? Because God made you to be like him. And so when he says, I want you to be holy, I want you to know what I'm like and I want you to live in the way that I want you to live, right? That what he's saying is, I actually want the best for you. I want you to live in a way that's gonna make you feel the best because you're gonna be acting according to the instructions and the design that I've given to you. Right? And this is, this, this is what it means because because now this, this is interesting though. He doesn't just pray for, um, he doesn't just pray for love and he doesn't just pray for holiness. He, play, he prays for both of them at the same time. And, and our culture would oftentimes um, like to put those two things in opposition to one another, right? You can either show love towards someone, desire them you know, to be loving, right? That they would grow in love and compassion or that they would grow in holiness, but you can't have both at the at the same time but Paul puts them together and he puts them together on purpose he puts them together on purpose because you can't separate the two right really loving someone means that you want someone to follow God's instructions not because they're intended to ruin their life but because that it's, it's going to save their life our kids have a, um, a a pet fish Jimmy the fish that's a good Jersey Shore name I think isn't it? Jimmy the fish right and they enforce certain restrictions for Jimmy the fish Right? Main restriction is Jimmy the fish has to stay in the water. Why? Because they want to restrict his freedom and keep him from all the fun of sitting on the couch? No. 
Because Jimmy the fish was designed for water. Those are his instructions. Keeping him in the water is not intended to ruin his life. It's intended to save his life. So if you really want to love someone, you're going to pray for them, that their love would grow and that their holiness would grow both at the same time. Right? And this isn't just an optional thing, right? Your friend, your classmate, your coworker, your child, your sibling, your parent, right? This is what you really need to pray for them because, because all your concern for someone, right? That your, your concern that you express, point number one, all your concern and all the time that you spend with someone, point number two, right? All those things, they're expressions of the way that you love them. I'm concerned about you, I care about you, right? I spend time with you, all those things, they will not actually be able to accomplish anything in the life of the person you love, right? All of that time, all of that concern, right? They can't do it. They can't accomplish this in their lives. Only God can do it. Because ultimately, it's only God who reveals sin to someone in their heart. It's only God who makes dead hearts alive. It's only God who brings someone to faith. It's only God who encourages and strengthens and nourishes a person's faith. So if, if you're someone who is discouraged, maybe about someone you love in your life, right? Because no matter how much concern you show for them, no matter how much time you spend with them, they don't seem to be changed by it, right? If that's you, or if you're discouraged right now, maybe that that other person that you love, that they're really not in your life at all right now. In other words, you don't really have a whole lot of influence. You don't have a whole lot of opportunity to spend time with them, even if, you, even if they wanted to or you want to, right? If that's true, then you need to see this last point Right? Not just concern, not just time together, but this last point of prayer as not just something that's an add-on. Oh yeah, and pray for them. Right? It's, it's not saying, well, you know, if loving them. Right? No. If, if, if loving them, being, showing concern for them, point number one, if it's not going to work, if, 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 if spending time with them, point number two, if it's not possible, right, then what you need to do is you need to see this point number three as prayer, as something that is absolutely essential. Take heart. That's what this is saying because underneath all of your concern and all your personal sacrifice of time the only thing that will truly change the heart of someone you love is the power of God working through the Holy Spirit to apply the work of Jesus in their life it's the only thing and for as powerlessness as you may rightly feel there is real power in that remember John 13 right I skipped over this part Jesus talking to his disciples he tells them to love one another gives permission to the outside world to see this is how they're going to know that you're my disciples that you love one another right but I skipped over a part really important part I don't know if anyone caught it a new commandment I give to you that you love one another right I read that before but then he tells them just as I have loved you you also are to love one another just as I have loved you now how is that exactly Right? Well, if you want to read a sermon on that one phrase, then you can read it from John himself in the first letter that we have of his in the Bible, 1 John. Short book, but especially if you look at chapter 4. It'll give you a sermon that expands on that. Right? Love others as I have loved you. But I'll just give you the summary of what he says there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. John writes that his love, that, 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 that this is love. This is, how, this is how this love looks. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, propitiation, right? Big theological alert, right? This is a big word. What do we do? Now, kids, I want you to know, right? Your, your parents, right? Adults, adults learned what this word propitiation was in Sunday school just a couple of weeks ago, right? But I'm going to get them off the hook. I'm going to help them out right now, right? Because as they're scrambling to remember, oh yeah, how was that? Right? Propitiation, this is what it is. 
Propitiation is the payment of the debt that we owe to God because of our sins and taking the place of us in the punishment that we deserve. Standing in, standing in our place to absorb the justice of God and the punishment that we deserve for our sin. That's what propitiation is. So in other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he was our propitiation. He took our punishment. He took what we deserved. And God now looks at us and says, because of that, yep, yep, that'll do. That'll, that'll, cover, the, that'll cover the debt. Consider the debt paid. Which means, everyone now, right, everyone it means it means that the work of jesus is both the example and the thing that accomplishes our love for someone else it is a good example how jesus loved us it's a great example for us to look like but it is more than just an example of how we're to love one another it is actually what accomplishes our love for other people it is what actually will accomplish them to be able to love other people it is the work of jesus and only the work of jesus applied by the holy spirit that can possibly do that you will never be as concerned for someone as jesus is for that someone you love you will never endure a hardship or a sacrifice to be with someone that comes anywhere close to the distance that Jesus traveled from heaven to earth to be with us. And you'll never ever love someone like Jesus did to the point of turning away the justice of God through his own death. Now there are, of course, though, ways to point to that. The Scottish evangelist, John Harper, he died in 1912, I told you that. He was on his way to Chicago to preach at the famous Moody Bible Church there. But while he was crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship that he was on, the Titanic, you may have heard of it, it hit an iceberg and it began to sink. And as the ship went down, Harper, knowing that he could, he could only survive so long in the, in the icy water, he took off his life jacket and he gave it to another person and he said, look, in all sincerity, you need this more than I do. And moments later, Harper disappeared beneath the, the water. Now, the reason why we know that Harper did this to this other individual is that four years later, when there was a reunion of survivors of the Titanic, the man to whom Harper had given his life jacket, gave witness and told the story of how he was rescued and how ultimately it led to his conversion of faith in Jesus Christ. All because a man so loved him that he gave his life that he might live. Right? That is exactly what it is with us. We have been given the gift of eternal life because someone said, you can have this and I will die in your place. That is the gospel. And when we love other people, we want them to know that true concern for their spiritual condition. We want to spend time with them and be with them. And we earnestly engage in prayer to the only God who can ultimately accomplish it. Let's pray together now. Father, we do lift up those in our lives whom we love. And we, Lord, pray that you would um, help us to think through how we might be able to love them well to use the very example that you have given to us in the person of Jesus, the example of selfless love, and look for ways to be able to do the same with those around us. Lord, change our hearts and strengthen us for the call to, to holiness that you have given to us. Help us to see it as a beautiful thing to know you better. And Lord, we pray that you would do it for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.